I thought we'd start off with a, a little quiz about famous last words. So if you have the, the PowerPoint up. Sometimes when people are getting near to the end of their life, they try and say things that are really meaningful. So I thought we'd, we'd have a guess as to who some of these people are. Some of them are blatantly obvious. So we could have the, the PowerPoint up. Who's this up here? Bob Marley. Money can't buy life. can buy many things. Well, that's actually quite profound, isn't it? Somebody nearing the end. Winston Churchill. I'm so bored with it all. <laughs> that's profound for you, isn't it? After all that he had done, he was bored. Who's this? Yeah. A life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved except in memory. That's one of those philosophical kind of comments you go away and think about and think, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> this one, who do you think said this? Beethoven. Beethoven, yes. Steve's right, Beethoven. I shall hear in heaven. Beethoven, the great composer who went deaf and didn't hear for the last years of his life, believed that he would hear again. Who's this? Karl Marx. Anyone got beard envy? <laughs> Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And who about this? I don't know why that picture's appeared underneath. That isn't the person. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Who's that? No? Peter. Peter. Test your memory. We're in the book of to Peter. So Peter is writing, these are the last words he says in this chapter, the last recorded words we have from this great apostle. And as he's writing at the end of um, this chapter, we find he wants us to come back to some really key points. Date-wise, he's writing somewhere in the mid-60s AD. Um, There's quite a lot of evidence to say Peter died somewhere between 64 and 68, so this is about the time he's writing. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, let's have a look at this passage. 2 Peter, chapter 3. It's on page 1156, if you've got a church Bible. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, and then the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. 
since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray again for a moment. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Lord, may that be the reality for us today. As we look at this passage of your word, may we, at the end of this passage, have grown in knowing and being known by you and having that hope of eternity in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we have here starts off with encouragement, doesn't it? If you look at verse 1 and 2, an encouragement to wholesome thinking and obedience. Recall what has been said and live this kind of things out. If you were here last week, um, when we looked at chapter 2, chapter 2 is a really difficult passage, all about um, false teachers and their destruction. You'll be pleased to know this passage, although it's difficult, and although there is tricky stuff here, is actually rather more encouraging, because it points us forward to that day when Jesus will return. And so Peter says, be on your guard, look forward, Jesus will come back. Jesus will return. Now, this is written about 30 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands if you're over 30 years of age. That's probably quite a lot of us. There are some here who have the privilege and blessing of being under that age bracket. But, can you remember 30 years ago? I was thinking about this this week. 30 years ago, I was 13. I'd just finished year eight at school. I'd had a really bad school report that said I was being lazy and needed to do a lot more work. Um, I was about to go on holiday. Can't remember where. Might have been Wales, but it might have been Scotland. I'd have to go around to my parents' house and look through old photo albums to work out where it was. But apart from that, I can't remember anything about that summer. Not a thing. Can anyone remember what they were doing in the summer 30 years ago? In detail. Simon. Thank you for that. that was, <laughs> anybody? Yeah, I started a new job in Park, Started a new job. Anybody else? Anyone get married 30 years ago? So you, hopefully you can remember that. Yes. <laughs> Looking for a house in Limb. So sometimes things stick, don't they? Important things. But quite often, what time does is it destroys our memories. Because time destroys all kinds of things, doesn't it? It destroys our physical bodies over time. 
It destroys and erodes those things that sometimes are important to us. And 30 years from when the church had been founded to by the end of Peter writing this letter, some people had started to forget what was important. People had started to say, Jesus didn't really say that. He couldn't have meant that. And we need to remember as well that there'd been no New Testament for them to go and say, hold on a minute, here here he did say that. It's recorded here. Because the New Testament was being written as the church was existing. Today, we can easily forget. Do you find it easy to remember the hope you have in Christ this morning? Or do you find sometimes you actually forget and live regardless? Sometimes we can forget that Jesus is coming back. Or we can put it so far back into our memories that it doesn't resonate on a day-to-day basis. So Peter is writing saying, get this in focus. Jesus will return. What was happening in Peter's day that there were some of these false teachers going around saying, well, Jesus really isn't coming back. Where is this second coming? Where is he? He promised he'd go, but he's not here. Where is he? And so they start saying, well, everything's just going to carry on the same. Day after day, the world will carry on. And that was standard thinking at the time when Peter was writing. Some of the Greek philosophers thought that. The Epicureans, they said the atom was stable. It would never change. And so the whole universe would carry on exactly the same. So they're just going back to type. They've forgotten the glorious hope that Jesus told us about. So Peter says, be on your guard. You've forgotten God's word. Don't forget what God said through the prophets, what he said through his son, what he said through his apostles. If you look at verse 5. Long ago, God's word brought everything into being. Long ago, God spoke and creation came about. Verse 6, long ago, the flood came and destroyed that which God had made because of the evilness that God saw in the world. But God rescued and he has sustained the world since. Verse 7, by the same word, God keeps the earth and the heavens ready for judgment. So the first thing I think we need to say, really, from this passage is Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. This is not a vague hope, it's not a metaphor, it's not an image, but it's a glorious, literal reality. The New Testament is full of it, everywhere. Jesus will one day return in great glory. Now what this passage does is it outlines the kinds of things we can expect. But actually, we are time-constrained today. So I'm not going to do a full New Testament overview of all the second coming passages. We'd be here for quite some time if we did that. But we'll just work our way through, actually, what Peter says. And he says, if you look at verse 10, he says, it will come like a thief. We don't know, and we'll never know exactly when Jesus will return. If anyone predicts that they know when Jesus will return, they don't know. They will be wrong. Because Jesus has said... We do not know. Luke 12, verse 40, it says, You must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. If you expect somebody to come round to your house, you get ready, don't you? If they turn up unexpected, it can take you by surprise. That's the whole idea here. And look what it says will happen at the great day of the Lord. The earth will be laid bare. All of humanity's dealings, deeds, will be brought before the Lord. The heavens will disappear and the elements, that basically means the stuff the world is made of, will be destroyed by fire. 
This perhaps doesn't sound quite as encouraging as some of the rest of the passage. But throughout the whole of the Bible, what we find is this, this idea, this, this theme that runs right the way through the Old Testament prophets as well, of the day of the Lord, of when God will bring the curtain down, if you like, on this current age, is that God will be the judge of everything that has happened. If we are found in Christ, this will be a glorious day. But all the deeds of humanity will be brought before the Lord. Verse 12, it says, this is a day of destruction, both of the physical world as we know it, and also, it says in verse 7, of the ungodly. See, this passage is amazingly good news if we are held secure in Christ. Amazingly hopeful, amazingly positive. But Peter makes it very clear in these verses that actually for those who have turned their back on God, for those who won't accept Jesus, for those who won't um, respond to the love that Jesus has poured out, that this will actually be a day of terror. This is what Peter says here. And to me, this is a really sobering reminder that how we respond to Jesus in this life has eternal consequences. How we respond to Jesus in this life really does matter. We'll come back to that as we go through the passage. But just the first question, do you want to be part of verse 7 or part of verse 13? Part of the hope or part of the destruction? It's a challenging thought. But this is not the end when Jesus comes back. This is the end of this age, but it's actually the start of something absolutely, incredibly amazing. Verse 13, there is a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Does it excite you that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth? Would you like to have everything renewed the way that God intended it to be? In Christ, it's coming. It is coming. Verse 14, this is something to look forward to. We are saved so that we can be part of all that God has for us. Now, one biblical scholar reckons there are probably about 300 references to the, new, to the second coming in the New Testament. Plus a whole load if you go back into the Old Testament as well. Jesus wants us to know that he's coming back. Yeah, I wonder how often do we just put this in our sort of memory and, and forget about it? Have we practically forgotten that Jesus will return? I don't know where your life is up to today. I don't know whether you, you may be having a great summer so far, or it may be absolutely awful. Life may be really tough at the moment. If life is tough, or if life is great, this is a hope to cling on to. This is something real and tangible that goes beyond this life. But I think there's a great challenge here as well. You know, one of the challenges um, for me, when I read anything about the second coming, when I read anything about Jesus' return, is that I suddenly stop thinking about the big picture and the hope, and suddenly become speculative and want lots of detail. I don't know about you, but I've been to meetings where people have had timelines up on the wall and said, you know, Jesus will come back after all this has happened. And I remember going to one, and then 10 years later it was out of date, and they'd have to change it. And it's like, well, that wasn't very good, really. What, what a, a strange thing to get involved with. This is not about speculation. This is about transformation. You know, if we let the second coming be about speculating and thinking about when could it happen, what could it be, then actually I think we've missed the point. This is about how God desires to transform us now and into the future. Now, yes, it is crucial that we know God's word. Yes, Jesus gives us pointers as to the signs of the times and those kind of things. 
But the ultimate message of the second coming is that Jesus is coming back. Is that hope resonating? And what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? It's radical, isn't it? It's a totally radical hope. I don't know what people would have thought the first time they heard this kind of message. But surely, for us today, this should change the way we live. Change the way we think. Change what our horizons are. You know, what is on your horizon today? Is it a holiday in the now rainy UK? Actually, I think it's stopping tomorrow and the sun's coming back, isn't it? Yeah, a little cheer there. For, um, is that it? Or is your horizon getting a new car or perhaps buying a house? Or is your horizon actually that great day when Jesus returns and there is a new heaven and a new earth? Why the delay? This is a question that Peter addresses here. As the first generation of Christians begin to die out, the questions start getting asked, you know, where is Jesus? He said he was coming back. Where is he? What's going on? In other places, Paul, when he writes to the church in Thessalonica, has to write to a group of people who thought, because Jesus was coming back, you could just sit around and relax and wait for him to return. You didn't really need to work, you know, just sit around, enjoy yourself. The problem is, when you do that, you get sucked into all kinds of stuff that really isn't very good for you. So, the question gets asked, where is he? Where is Jesus? Delays. Anyone enjoy delays? Anyone been stuck on the trains in recent weeks? Yeah, a few nods there. Um, I was coming back from a, a meeting at the People's Church in Partington the other Monday, and somebody had misset some traffic lights at some roadworks, and it was letting like 20 cars through in one direction and three through in the other. And I just sat in this delay, and I was there for quite a while. I had my parents coming around for a meal, and I was thinking they'll be expecting this meal. I won't be home in time to cook it. And you know, you get that kind of stress building up. Why does delay bother us? Anyone want to give an answer? It upsets our plans. Because our plans are? Time. Yeah. We can't get time back, can we? We are restricted by time. We are all governed by time. We decay according to time. Time will eventually run out on all of us. So we get impatient waiting for things. However, God is not like us. God does not decay. God isn't influenced by time like we are. He isn't pressurized by deadlines. He can see the end from the beginning. He doesn't exist in time in the way that we do. Psalm 90 verse 4, it says, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So if we say Jesus is slow in coming back, it's really the wrong concept to use. It's like going asking a stone about its personality. You know, are you an extrovert or an introvert? It's just not a question that a stone has any relevance to. It's it's the wrong question to ask. The delay in Jesus' return is actually because of God's love. You look what it says in this passage. It's because he's being patient. Verse 9, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but wants people to come to repentance. He is patient, not slow. He is loving, not constrained by our ideas of time. And out of his great love for people, he's holding back his hand and saying, not yet. Not yet will Jesus return. You know, the, the New Testament tells us that the Spirit has been poured out. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. We are commissioned to share Jesus. We have been empowered to do it. 
We've been gifted to do that, and we need to get on with it. And God is leaving us to get that job done so that less people will perish and so that more may come to know the glorious hope of Jesus. Now, some people have read this passage and say, well, surely this means then that God wants to save everybody. You know, everybody will come to repentance. But actually, Peter's point here isn't that at all. This is about God's heart for people, not how people will respond to God. You see, some people, no matter how passionately the gospel is preached, how much evidence they see for the kingdom of God, will still want to reject Jesus, will still turn him away, will still say the Son of God has absolutely nothing to do with me, or he doesn't exist, or whatever it is. There will still be those who will not repent, and who will reject him. But again, it's a reminder, we are not only saved to eternity with Christ, but we are saved from eternity away from him. God longs for all to turn to him, but the sad reality from this passage is that not all will. Not all will. But the good news in Jesus is that we will be saved, but that God has already started bringing about his new creation now. Now, we need to be really balanced here. Theologians talk about this idea of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. That actually God has come in Christ, that God's rule and reign has broken out in our experience, but that it won't be complete until the day when Jesus returns in great glory. Now, I think the Bible is really clear that actually Jesus has come, that the kingdom of God is breaking out, but actually what we see is nothing like what there will be. Nothing like. Nothing like. Our hope is far, far better than our present. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Luke 17, 20 to 21. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that could be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. You know, in our day, when we see somebody come to faith in Jesus, the kingdom of God grows. The rule and reign of God grows. If we see somebody freed from sin or somebody with a physical healing, we see that the kingdom of God is growing. There are signs that God's kingdom is coming. But it's only a glimpse. It's only a taster of what is yet to come. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Yeah, we see through a glass dimly, don't we? But then we shall see face to face. Because ultimately, in this life, we're broken. Our lives are broken. We need remaking. We don't just need a repair. We need a complete renewing and remaking. The new heavens and the new earth is not like, you know, taking your car into the garage and having a bit of rust patched up on it and saying, oh, that'll do. It's about a total renewal of everything. There was a poll done in the U.S. Um, I don't know why this polling company was doing this poll, but they were asking when people thought Jesus would return. And apparently about half of American Christians believe that Jesus will return before 2050. Now I read that and I think, isn't it a good job that God doesn't have to respond to our opinion? Isn't it a good job that God is sovereign and he will do things in his perfect timing? We don't know when this will all come to pass. We don't know when Jesus will return. Like a thief, Jesus will come back. 
The question for us is, what are we doing about it until he does? Are we making the most of the time until then? We go on holiday two weeks tomorrow. And when I've got a holiday coming up, and I think we're away for like 14, 15 days, something like that, I always get a bit of tension going on inside of me. There's one part of me wants to go demob happy. I don't know if you ever find that feeling where you just think, I'm going away in a bit, it can all wait till I get back. And then your to-do list is sort of like this kind of length, and then you're thinking, that wasn't very sensible, was it? I should have done it all before I went. Or you can use the opposite thing and think, right, I'm going away. Let's try and get everything that I can done sorted now so that when I go, I can relax. Which way are you, Nick? Oh, right, okay. Get everything done. Try to. Is anyone a demob happy person? Yeah. (laughs) Switch off, switch off. Holiday's coming, you know, let's just all switch off. We can do that with the second coming. That's what the church in Thessalonica were doing. They were sort of switching off, saying, let's just sit back and relax, Jesus will return. And we could look at our world and we could say, well, there's so much going wrong. There are so many problems in the world. You know, we we saw with the, the rebuild feedback. There are people living in the most appalling conditions right across our planet. We see the political turmoil of Brexit. We, we can see all the stuff going on in our own nation, morality sort of slipping, all this stuff, and we can think, well, perhaps we could just sit back and, and just wait for Jesus to return. He, he will sort it in his own good timing. But actually waiting, if you just sit around, is very problematic when you've been called to serve Jesus. We've been given a task. We've been given a commission. And Peter talks about holiness. He talks about getting on with what we've been called to do. And so the third thing is, how do we respond to all of this? What do we do knowing that Jesus will return? Three things. First thing is action. Sharing Jesus. You know, this really does matter. Peter is really direct in this passage. Verse 7 He says that people will perish if they do not come to repentance. Now, I I just can't imagine the pain that God must feel about people not being in his presence for eternity because they've chosen to reject him. We see that needs to impact our evangelism because our evangelism, our mission, is time-limited. It doesn't go on indefinitely. The age of the church and the age of the Spirit having been poured out is time-limited to when Jesus will return. Our commission to make disciples is time-limited. Now, that doesn't mean we go around frantically. We're not called to franticness. But we're called to realize that actually Jesus will return. That there is a day when he is coming back. Second thing, holiness. Verse 14, it says, Be found spotless, be blameless, be at peace with him. You know, knowing the reality of Christ knowing the reality that Jesus is coming back, should spur us on, shouldn't it? To live lives that respond to him. And verse 17, Peter encourages us not to fall from our secure position. Lots of tangents we could go off in this passage. We could look at predestination, um, once saved, always saved, all kinds of things. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. It's the summer, and I know that actually we're, we're probably demob happy enough to not deal with those massive topics this morning. But actually what Peter does is very earthy and very practical here. For Peter, we are saved when we are in Christ. We are saved when we know Jesus. So stay as close to him as you possibly can. Are you close to Jesus this morning? Are you living a life that is reflected in holiness? Don't risk anything that could disrupt that relationship with Jesus. 
Are you secure today? Do you know that security? Is the hope of Jesus just a vague hope, like a hope the sun will now come out? Or is it a certain hope? A hope that actually we're looking forward to it. Because the third thing, and I think this is probably the most exciting, is about this eternal hope. About the different horizon. About seeing the whole of life in a different way. The hope of the new heaven and earth, of everything being made new, is radically different to the world that we see, where things so often are going wrong. When there is brokenness and hurt and pain. And we see these images in scripture of a day when God will make everything new. Surely that should inspire us to live in totally different ways. You know, it was that very hope that would keep the slaves going in the Americas as they turned that hope into gospel songs. It was this kind of hope that kept the early church going when they got persecuted by the Romans and they got put into the amphitheaters with lions who were about to eat them. It was this hope, and it is this hope, that can keep us going today no matter what we are facing. If only we can cling on to this. If only we can not forget. How do you remember not to forget? Well, you keep thinking about it. Keep talking about it. Keep reminding ourselves that Jesus is coming back. And so Peter's final words. Grow in grace. Don't get swept away by error. Ignore this false stuff that we were looking at last week. Keep our eyes on Jesus because he is the one who the glory belongs to now and forevermore. So I just want to leave you with a simple question. How is all of that resonating in your life today? What's the horizon of your experience today? Is it all of this? Or is it something not quite so exciting? Let's pray that our horizon will be the same that Peter encouraged the church to have.